Let's pray. Father, as we come to look at your word today, would you bless us with your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us afresh, that you would speak clearly to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the passage today raises huge questions that theologians and philosophers have been wrestling with throughout time. I'm ashamed to say that I've been largely avoiding those questions this week or having big tantrums about them, as I've kind of, Richard, why have I got this passage to preach on? And uh, yes, as I've tried to put thoughts into this sermon. And so before I go any further today, I want to acknowledge that I've drawn large parts of this sermon from the likes of Keller, Ortberg, Zacharias, Atkinson, and, and others whose thoughts I'm sure I've absorbed. So we've started this series in the book of Job. We've discovered that Job is an epic lyrical play where action takes place on two stages, a lower one and an upper one. Job, down on the lower stage, never gets to see what happens on the upper stage. But we do. And today, we're looking at that upper stage. We're looking at the dialogue between God and Satan. Satan, the great adversary, the one who accuses. And we discover that Satan has been roaming the earth. God then points out Job, an exceptional human. Satan essentially tells God, well, Job only loves you because of what he gets. He wouldn't love you if you took his stuff away. Go on, hurt him. Then he'll curse you. God essentially says no, but I'll allow you to hurt him. But there's some limits. And then Satan goes out from God's presence and inflicts suffering on Job. So we're going to look this morning at three things. We're going to ask, what do we need to know about Satan? What can we know about God from this passage? And what do we need to know about Job? After all, all good sermons have three points. I'm going to try not to disappoint you. And so here we go. Satan. The Bible doesn't give much time to Satan. After all, it's a book about God, and so no honor or extra attention is given to the great accuser. The Bible does tell us that Satan is real. Jesus spent most of his ministry fighting against him, fighting against the father of lies. In Isaiah 14, we learn that Satan essentially wanted to take God's place and be worshipped, And in Revelation, we're told that he fell from heaven and about a third of the angels went with him. Satan has set himself up in direct opposition to God's kingdom and loves it when he can turn human hearts against God. Satan appears to be deeply jealous of the way God loves humans of the way God bestows upon humans grace, authority, and status. In turn, Satan is deeply jealous of the worship humans give to God. 
And so Satan questions this love relationship between God and humanity, seeking to drive a wedge between them. And so Satan goes up to Eve in the garden and essentially says to her, Did God really say you couldn't eat from that one tree? Maybe God doesn't really love you. Otherwise, he'd let you eat from the fruit of that tree. God doesn't really want you to be in good relationship with him. God doesn't really love you. And here in Job 1, Satan goes up to God and says, God, Job doesn't really love you, God. He only loves you because his life's pretty good. He doesn't really love you. Satan is the accuser. Satan is the one who says, God doesn't love you. Real love cannot exist. And this is what is at stake in Job. In scripture, we see that Satan casts doubt on God's goodness and only speaks truth in order to twist it and deceive people. He's the best misuser of scripture. You just have to look at the way he tempts Jesus in the gospel. Satan uses fear of death to hold people in bondage and Satan seeks to block the good news. Satan does bring persecution, sickness, and perversion. And our sinfulness, in turn, does allow Satan a foothold in this world. But in Job, we learn something very important. We learn that Satan and God are not equal opposing forces, trapped in some sort of ageless duel. At this point, I think of Ben with his lightsaber and the good and evil having this equal kind of battle going on. Actually, the Bible says that's not true. Satan is limited. God allows Satan to inflict suffering upon Job, but only so much. And so in verse 12, he says, you can do this, but not that. Satan is limited in power. And in the rest of scripture, we discover that Satan has an end that is fast approaching. Satan and God are not two equal opposing forces. And so we come to God. What what do we know about God from this passage? We learn that God is the one who's in control. He is the much greater force. Secondly, Eve and Adam entertained Satan's lie, the one where he essentially told them, God doesn't really love you. But when Satan's been roaming the earth seeking to discredit humans, God won't have any of it. God says to Satan, have you seen Job? He does love me. God will not believe Satan's lie that love cannot really exist. God is not deceived by Satan. Also, did you notice how in verse 11, Satan tries to get God to strike Job, but God won't do it. Instead, he allows Satan to strike him in verse 12. You see, when God made the world, God made it perfect. It was 
good. It wasn't a world where random floods came along and caused houses to collapse and kill people. God doesn't generate that kind of suffering in the beginning, and he doesn't generate it in this passage. And yet, and yet, God allows it and is in absolute control over it. Hmm. God permits the evil and even to a degree sets Job up for it. But God limits it and doesn't stretch out his own hand against Job. And here we have our big question. Here we have the question that philosophers down the ages and theologians have been wrestling with. Why, O oh God, why did you allow Satan to cause Job to suffer? What possible good can you bring from this? Here, Keller helpfully explains, and he says it's best, that we need to understand God's asymmetrical relationship to suffering. On the one hand, God hates it and yet allows it. God permits it but limits it. Satan wants to discredit Job by bringing suffering into his life, and yet this very suffering is actually going to do the exact opposite. It's going to purify his relationship with God, and Satan is going to essentially defeat himself. You see, God doesn't enjoy seeing Job suffer, but will allow it, will permit it to a degree, in order to destroy Satan's ultimate intention of discrediting Job from being in relationship with the God of the universe. Satan is out to say, your love for God is not real. And I'm going to crush you so you will not live in that love relationship with your creator. And God says, I'm going to show you that Job is going to love me for nothing. And our love is going to stand firm and it's going to defeat your attention and intentions. And it is going to lead Job into everlasting, internal, pure and perfect life. So here we have Satan and we have God. It is complex and hard. But what of Job? Well, actually, the passage today doesn't tell us anything about Job. Job's not in on this upper stage discussion at all. And actually, that in itself is significant. And because he's not in on that discussion, we're going to have just a brief look at him now. Job loses everything. When Satan leaves God's presence, he goes and utterly destroys all that he has. He takes from him all his possessions, destroys his land, his animals. He takes his children from him. We read in verse 20 and 21 of the passage, it says this, Job got to his feet, ripped his robe, and shaved his head. Then fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked I come from my mother's womb. Naked I'll return to the womb of the earth. God gives, God takes. God's name be ever blessed. Not once 
Through all of this did Job sin. Not once did he blame God. Job suffers. Just quickly, we need to just see from these verses that he grieves that suffering. He rips his clothes and shaves his head. He is emotional. He is real. He is sad about the things that he lost. And Christians, we must always know that we are allowed to be sad. We're allowed to be emotional. We're allowed to cry out. We are allowed to grieve. We are allowed (laughs) to question God. But Job doesn't sin in cursing God. And so at the end of chapter 1, Satan nil, Job 1. Job's relationship with God is intact, and he proves that it is possible to love God for nothing. To love God when all his stuff has been taken from him. Job has learned before he's reached this point not to make the things of his life the foundation of his life. And so when they are taken from him, he instead can fling himself on God. Folks, it's an important side question this morning to ask ourselves, you know, is there anything we're letting be God? A relationship, our stuff, our things. Because when suffering comes... If there are foundation, we will become worse through suffering. If God is our foundation, when suffering comes, we will fling ourselves upon the Almighty and find a depth of relationship that can travel us through that season and beyond it. But it is hard, and we are allowed to cry for children that we have lost, for pain in our lives, and for things that are not right. They aren't right. They weren't part of the world God intended for us to live in. But they are here, and God is allowing them. It's very hard. As we go on through the book of Job, you'll discover that it's actually debatable as to how well he does at loving God for nothing. I personally think he does amazing and want to salute him because at the first messenger that came along to tell me that my house had been destroyed, I'd have been like, oh God, what are you doing? This is just so awful. I'd be like, I really, I'm not good. (laughs) I'm not good. I think I'm very tempted to curse God, which is just what Satan wants me to do. (laughs) So I salute Job because I think he does amazing But he does come to a point where he really deeply questions God and he's really crying out why, what is is going on here? And you know often when we're suffering, at the real depth of suffering, we kind of say, well, if only I knew why. If only I could grasp why, then somehow I could get through this, Lord. But you know what happens then? What happens is that we end up loving God for the answer of why. We don't love him for nothing. Huh. And so God brings Job to the point in this book where he gets into the place where he loves him for nothing. 
He loves him without the why. Job never gets to see the upper stage. He never understands why he suffered in the horrendous ray that he does. And often for us, most often for us today, we too will not know why. Is it because I ate too many donuts? Well, maybe, Nicola. Is it the consequence of living in our fallen world? Yes, possibly. Are there things occurring on the upper stage that we cannot know anything about? Maybe. But so often we will not know why. And Christians, it is really, really important that we don't offer trite answers to the why questions of suffering. Really important that when people are suffering, we walk with them holding out the hope of the future to come without adding to their suffering by offering trite answers. Job never gets to know why. And in not knowing and still bowing before God when he comes to speak to him, Job's love for God is totally purified and Satan is defeated. Job loves God in accepting his sovereignty. And Keller says this, which I found helpful. Don't resign yourself that you'll never know why, but embrace it and discover that you don't need to know why. It's another level of trust in our almighty and sovereign God. For most of us that have been through any kind of suffering that is deep, we will know that it is a journey to arrive at that point of embracing. But in all that, there will be a final answer when we see him face to face. (laughs) Oh, it's hard. (laughs) I've had some big tantrums this week. What can we learn from this passage? When you suffer, when I suffer, let us understand that Satan will be out to drive a wedge between us and God. He'll say, does God really love you? And folks, let us be aware in that moment that you and I will have a very unique opportunity to love God purely as we love him for nothing. And in doing so, we'll enter into a depth of relationship with God that we've not experienced before. We'll be able to live with mystery in anticipation for the day when there will be no more tears, when love will win and suffering and Satan will be no more. And it is a day worth holding out for. It's a day God is fighting for on our behalf. And Satan, the father of lies who tried to take God's place and is full of pride, will seek through our suffering to rob us of humility. He will seek to set us up against God. Satan will foster pride and lies in our hearts. And yet, when we come to a place of acceptance, surrendering to God's sovereignty, we resist Satan's intention of destroying us and our future eternal happiness. In suffering, we're called to a stance of resistance against Satan's intention to destroy true love between humanity 
and God. It isn't easy, folks, and it's okay to still have um, plenty of questions to want to ask the Lord as we look at this. But I need to tell you today that there is absolutely no alternative to the answer of suffering that is of any worth. You see, a religious person with incomplete theology might say, well, you suffer because you did wrong. Maybe you need to go to church more. Maybe, um, maybe God meant this to happen because of some horrible thing that might have happened otherwise. Or maybe you didn't say enough prayers, Nicola. Maybe, you know, you just need a bit more faith. That's what a religious person might say. An unbeliever might say, well, you suffer because there is no God. Or if there is a God, he's not very good or powerful. This suffering, it's just all kind of random. But suffering as a punishment because I'm not good enough. Or suffering just being totally random with no part of a bigger story leave me wholly unsatisfied in the face of real suffering. No, I want there to be a purpose and reason to this. I want there to be a bigger story. And the book of Job says there is. Those two other approaches are deeply flawed. The answers they provide to suffering keep humans in control. Instead, Job invites us to a place of acceptance of mystery where we get to live in a relationship with the God who is in control. It says there will be final answers that we can anticipate, though we won't see them now. And so Job stops us saying foolish things to those who are in the midst of suffering. We're not to blame them, shame them, dismiss their suffering as random, or to confuse them. We're not to add to their suffering. Instead, we're to stand with them, holding on to the great hope and truth scripture gives us. Job allows us to face the God of the universe, whose wisdom is above ours. You are God in heaven, and here am I on earth. The God who suffers deeply at every suffering we face. The God who came in Jesus to be human and suffer perfectly. Jesus came to love for absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing except love. See, Job never gets to see the upper stage. God never tells him about it. He never finds out why he suffers, why his lot has been such. But in coming to the place of accepting God's sovereignty, choosing to submit himself to God, he becomes a great hero in the face of suffering. You and I are invited, with all the resources of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ, to become great in suffering. We are invited too to become living witnesses that true love between humans and God is possible. And to hold on to the fact that this love wins. 
it wins. Every wrong, every tear is going to be dealt with. And it wins. (laughs) It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean we can't scream and shout. It doesn't mean I can't have a tantrum on the floor. Actually, it means that I, I can. And I can't express it fully in words. But I know that when I've come to the place in my own life where I've had some degree of suffering that won't be the same as yours and it won't have been the worst suffering in the world. In fact, it's probably been very minimal, but to me it's been my suffering. And I've been up all night and I've been wrestling with the Lord. Why? Why have you done this? I know that it's always about four o'clock in the morning (laughs) where I finally get to the point. I'm like, okay, you are God. Nothing else works. No answer satisfies other than you are God in heaven and here am I on earth. And when Job reaches that point, oh my word, the power and love that is allowed to flow through that is immeasurable. The healing and grace that comes unlimited. Folks, I don't know what's going to happen to you in your life, but as sure as the fact that one day you will die, as sure as the fact that you will suffer, we all will of some degree or another, or we'll stand along somebody very close who does. And you won't always be able to know why. In fact, most often you won't. But I invite you today to enter into that relationship with the Lord Jesus, to enter into a relationship with God who loves you so much and is fighting for love to win, who will not allow Satan to say, love doesn't really exist. It's difficult, folks. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are here. Thank you so much that your word um, doesn't pretend that uh, everything is neat and perfect. Thank you, God, that your word is full of people who question you, question what's going on in life. Thank you that we're allowed to. Thank you that we're allowed to show our emotions to you. Thank you that we're allowed to grieve. And God, we long long for the end of all suffering and say come Lord Jesus come as we anticipate the future as we anticipate the final end of all suffering and God as we live through the mists of it now I pray that you would help us to hold on to a loving relationship with you that we might see Satan's intentions over us utterly destroyed and that we may journey into everlasting life and love with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.